Good morning. If you have your Bibles, get them open to Mark chapter 4. If you do not have a Bible, there's a black one and a seat back in front of you. Get to page 890. You'll be in Mark chapter 4. Um, we invite you to do that and turn, to, turn there with us because we want you to see uh, that what we're talking about comes directly uh, from the Lord's Word. And uh, our opinion is irrelevant, but His Word is timeless and eternal. And so that's what we want to teach around here. While you're turning there, I want to uh, make note of something that's happening this afternoon and even invite you to it. Um, this afternoon at 4 o'clock, we're going to have something called an FBN Kids Service, right? And uh, that is in response to, uh, there's, a, there's a group of uh, children meeting downstairs right now, and they'll meet downstairs next service as well. And, and uh, we, uh, we care deeply around children, about children around here because uh, they are the future, right? They are the ones that we are to invest uh, the seeds of the gospel in the next generation. And so uh, it was our joy in uh, last, last January to bring Matt and Sarah Buell on, on to staff to be our uh, children ministry directors, and they and God keeps blessing that ministry. They now have a team of 20 volunteers uh, that help them put that on, and there's, uh, and there's more than 30 kids that are in that age range of, of age 5 through 3rd grade. Even more, if you lump in, or intermediate, 4th and 5th grade in there with them. Um, but but uh, the Lord is moving and blessing that, and if you come today at 4, in fact, if you're a parent or grandparent, I want you here, uh, because you're going to hear the songs they've been learning, you're going to hear the scriptures they've been memorizing, uh, you're going to see this, kind of get an experience of what what their Sunday mornings is like, and it will help you engage with your kids at that level. If you're not a parent or grandparent and just like adorable things, then you're going to see adorable little children singing. So you're invited as well. But that'll be at four o'clock today, and I want to I want to invite you to that, and just also make mention of just how grateful we are for the Lord for what He's doing in the lives of little ones around here. Uh, I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into Mark chapter four. So let's pray. Father, we are grateful uh, for each and every person who's here. We're grateful for uh, your presence most of all, Lord. And as we turn our attention now uh, to your word, I pray that you just continue what you already started uh, in inhabiting the praise of your people, being enthroned uh, by the praise of your people, that, that this is, these are your truths, God. This is your word. We're, we're nothing without you. This service is nothing without you. And so uh, we pray that you, uh, your spirit would move unhindered and unchecked uh, through this place and that we would respond humbly uh, to you. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, William Jennings Bryan lived an interesting life. If you're a history buff, and I mean like an actual history buff, like somebody who, who reads a lot of history knows, you might know that name. If you're like me and you're interested in history in school but haven't really pursued it out of it, you won't know his name. Um, because his life was a mixture of success and failure. He was a lawyer and a politician in order, and there were three different times. Here's one level of success. There are three different times that he won the Democratic Party's nomination for president of the United States. Pretty impressive, right? The reason he kept getting nominated is he lost every single time, right? So he never became president. That's why most people don't know who he is. After that, he, he became a secretary of state, and, and, and one of his driving forces was he did all he could to convince the United States to remain neutral and not engage in World War I. Obviously, if you know anything about history, he failed at that, right? And so after, after a while, he got out of politics, and he devoted the rest of his life to defending the Christian faith, and there's one time when he was in a debate, and he was asked to explain how he was so certain that there was a God. And he was told that since he, he, they used his own argument against him, he said, since there's no hard, surefire evidence and faith is required, why couldn't, can you have such certainty that there is the Lord? And he said, why don't you defend to me the mystery of God? And in his answer, he took a kind of a weird detour, and he talked about a watermelon seed. He said, I've observed the power of a watermelon seed. 
A watermelon seed is a black, little black seed that has the power of drawing from the ground and through itself growing to 200,000 times its weight. And he says, when you can tell me how it does that and how it takes this little black material and out of it colors an outside surface that is beyond the imitation of art and then forms inside of that a white rind and inside of that, again, a red heart that is then thickly inlaid with more countless black seeds, each one of which is capable of growing 200,000 times its weight. He said, well, if you can explain to me the mystery of the watermelon seed, then then you can ask me to explain the mystery of God. In the last four weeks, we've been in Mark chapter 4, and this chapter revolves around the parables of Jesus Christ. Namely, it's, it, the main one that the chapter centers around is the parable of the sower and the seed. Right? But there's one aspect of that parable, despite being in this chapter for weeks, that we haven't discussed yet, and it is this. It's just how discouraging that parable can be. Because the parable is about sowing seeds of God's word and God's truth and God's gospel and how the different types of human hearts and how they receive those seeds and that truth. And the discouraging part is this. Jesus describes four different types of soils. And only one is good. Four different types of, four different conditions of the human heart. And only one is capable of receiving and welcoming and multiplying truth. One in four. And those are just the types of soil, not the results aren't guaranteed to be that high, but one in four receive God's word, welcomed it, are changed by it, and share it. Now, if that's not discouraging you this morning, I might suggest you aren't sowing enough. Because imagine if every teacher knew at the start of the school year that 75% of their class would fail no matter what they did. Imagine if every coach knew at best Despite all their efforts, at best, they would win 25% of their games. They'd get discouraged pretty quick, wouldn't they? You see, with those odds, Jesus' followers will always be tempted to believe something that is a lie, that the kingdom of darkness is winning. Can we just be honest this morning? It's not true. We know Jesus wins. We know the kingdom of darkness loses. But it doesn't always feel that way, does it? Our society is straying further and further and further away from the Lord. It's the wide path that leads to destruction and many find it, and the narrow path that leads to life and few find it. Even the church gets distracted from her missions, marked by infighting. Every tool that comes along that has great, the potential for great ministry impact, like, like the internet or social media, is used for evil at a thousand times the scale it's used for good. And the people that you love and the people, there's people that you pray for and people that you show, share the hope of Jesus with and nothing seems to change. And so if our focus doesn't remain on God, if our focus doesn't remain in his word and his truth and his sovereignty and his goodness, then we can get discouraged really quickly. We can lose hope really quickly. We can give in to fear and in response to that begin to, to start putting our trust in our efforts and there's nothing but death down that road. Thankfully, Jesus foresaw this, first through his disciples and then for us. And so he told us another parable here in Mark 4. And it's one that's remarkably similar. Right, the themes line up with the parable of the sower, but it just has a different focus. And it's meant to remind us of some powerful truths. And so I'm going to invite Brooke Hogan up to read Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 29. If you're physically capable, would you please stand with her to honor the reading of God's word this morning? Morning, Brooke. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters his seed on the ground. Night and day, 
Whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Thank you, Brooke. You guys can have a seat. Of course, keep your Bibles open there to Mark 4. We're going to walk through this parable for you real quick. And then I want to tell you a couple unique, interesting things about it before we get to the meaning. In the first, uh, in verse 26, Jesus begins the parable by just saying, the kingdom of God is like this. Right? And so there's no mystery about what this parable is about. He's not talking about a society. He's not talking about life in this world. He's specifically referring to the kingdom that he came to establish. Right? It, the kingdom of God, we told you beginning in Mark, the kingdom of God is literally anywhere that God's reign is recognized and submitted to. And this is the kingdom that we are invited into by the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the kingdom we become a part of when we follow Jesus Christ. And so if you're in Christ this morning, you're a citizen of this kingdom. Which means that we should pay attention to how it works. And in this parable about the kingdom of God, there is a farmer and a sower against. The same theme that we've seen all throughout Mark 4. But in the first parable that this chapter began with, the focus of the, that parable to sower was on the ground. Right? The, the focus of the parable was on the soil. It was on the ability or openness to receive the seed that was sown. In this parable, Jesus doesn't focus on the soil. He keeps his focus on the sower. And the sower scatters the seed in the ground, and then what? Well, look at verse 27. It says, he sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he doesn't know how. The soil produces a crop by itself, first the blade, then the head, and then the full grain on the head. So the sower scatters the seed, and then he just goes about his life. He sleeps and rises, he follows the rhythm of creation, he goes about his duty, but the one thing that he's not active in is in the growth of the seed. He has no control over that. But an amazing thing happens. The seed grows. First it goes into the soil, then it germinates and sprouts and grows. There's a blade and then a head and then a full grain, and the whole time the sower doesn't know how this is happening. The same way we can't explain how one watermelon seed can produce all of that, but it still happens, doesn't it? Outside of our activity, outside of our concern, outside of our control, it happens. And then comes the harvest. And the sower gets to enjoy the fruit of a harvest that he scattered the seed, yes, but everything else was outside of his control. Now, there are two interesting tidbits about this parable. Right? This is the only parable that is unique to the gospel of Mark. And what I mean by that is Matthew doesn't record this parable, Luke does not record this parable in his gospel, and John does not record this parable in his gospel. And so Mark is the only one who has this. And secondly, Mark doesn't record for us any kind of follow-up explanation from Jesus as to what this parable means, as he did with the first parable of the sower. Which is kind of fitting if you think about it, right? The meaning of a parable about the mysterious growing of a seed, the mysterious growing of a kingdom, is left in a measure of mystery. And so I'm going to do something this morning I don't normally do. I want to walk you through two different possible meanings to this parable. And I'm not usually a fan of possible meanings when it comes to preaching. And if I have a microphone, I want to declare with a clear conscience and confidence in that what I'm saying is true. But for this unique, specific parable, I think both meanings are faithful to the rest of the Scripture, which, are huge, which is hugely important. 
And God wasn't afraid of a little bit of mystery in this parable, so I shouldn't be. And one more thing, when we get to the response, I think what this parable calls us to is absolutely crystal clear. And we'll get to that in a, mean, in a minute. Meaning number one, possible meaning number one, we'll just call it the kingdom. Right, now it's clear, right, from verse 26 that this parable is about the kingdom of God. But the question that we need to ask is, is it about the entire story of the kingdom or is it about how things work in the kingdom of God? And those are two different things, right? And this meaning is on the big picture. It's on the entire story of the kingdom of God, which, mean, which would mean that its meaning is very similar to the, the parable of the mustard seed, which we're going to look at next week. But in this particular meaning, right, the lone sower is Jesus, and he comes and he's he spreading the seeds of the kingdom through his life and his ministry. And people keep wanting it to be bigger. Right? They want him to be a political ruler, a military ruler, and on and on and on. But he just keeps sowing the seeds of truth. And once the seed is sown, right? once, once he's done his work, there, there's an interim phase between the sowing and the harvest. And this is when the disciples and all those after them will be witness to the kingdom of God growing. Right, first in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth in places like Terre Haute, Indiana. But the entire time the kingdom is growing, the workers don't know how it's growing. It's all the work of God. And then when the time is right, the sower, Jesus, will return for the harvest. And this is when the all the manifestation of Jesus' kingdom will happen, and he will rule forever. Again, I don't know if this is the exact meaning of the parable, but I like it a lot. One, because it's super hopeful and super encouraging. Most importantly, because it lines up perfectly with the rest of Scripture. And in this meaning, we are invited into the kingdom of God. A kingdom that we don't establish, a kingdom that we don't grow, and a kingdom we don't bring about the full manifestation of. But in God's mysterious grace, we are a part of its growth. We are grafted into it. The gospel reaches our hearts and saves our souls and transforms our lives and gives us a hope that lasts for all eternity. Praise the Lord. Now, possible meaning number two, right, it would be, a, a, I'll call it additional sowers. This, this possible meaning takes a, a slightly different interpretation. The theory behind it is that this parable isn't actually about the full scope of the kingdom of God, but about the ongoing work of it. And it points to reality. It's also based in the scriptures for us. And that is that the growth of the kingdom is never on us, but that the work of sowing seed is passed on and multiplied to us. Think about the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Jesus says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And how do we do this? Teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Later in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is writing, and he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, and Apollos watered, but who brought growth? God gave the growth. We are indeed, we have indeed been commissioned by our Lord Jesus to make disciples of all nations. The disciples were told to take everything that Jesus modeled for them, everything that Jesus commanded to them, and to teach it to others who could then teach it to others, who could then teach it to others, who could teach it to others, and on and on. And whenever we do this, we are, to to borrow the analogy of Mark 4, we are sowing seeds. We are planting seeds of truth. But our job ends there. We have no power to change hearts. We have no power to erase spiritual blindness. God alone brings the growth. 
And you can see that in the story. The sower sowed seed on the ground, and then he doesn't fret, and he doesn't worry, he doesn't lose sleep. He just goes about his life. Why? Because it's out of his hands at that point. And then what happens? The harvest comes, and the sower enjoys the fruit of a harvest that he didn't cause to grow. See, our job is to sow seeds. It's to share what it is that Jesus Christ has done for us. It's to point people to the gospel that is exclusively the power of God to save souls. It's to tell the world this incredibly important truth that we are all sinners. And that sinfulness makes us guilty before a holy, awesome, terrifying God. And those sins are not paid for. If we're not made right with God, then we will spend an eternity in hell, which is a fate that we have earned and we deserve. And God in his love for us sent his son Jesus to become one of us, to take on our form and live the sinless life that we could not so that when Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't dying for any sins that he committed. He was dying to pay the price for the sins of any who believe in him. And whenever you come to the full understanding that you are a guilty sinner before God who deserves nothing but hell, the right response to that is remorse and brokenness and you turn to Jesus and believe in him and trust in his death to pay your price and in his resurrection to promise you eternal life in heaven. That is the gospel truth. That is the only hope for humanity. And our job is not to save others. Our job is not even to convince them. Our job is not to be so prepared that we can answer any possible question they might ever ask us before we even begin sharing. Our job is to love others and to have them genuinely matter to us and to care about their eternal destination. Our job is to build relationships with them and then whenever opportunities present themselves to be bold and faithful to sow the seeds of gospel truth in their lives to tell them the story that they need to hear. And whenever that happens, after that, it's out of our hands. And when there is growth, and when there's acceptance, when there's salvation, it's not because we did anything, but because God brought the growth. And yet, in his grace, he still allows us to be a part of the harvest, to enjoy the fruits and rewards of the growth that he alone bought, because both our salvation is based on grace alone and our mission to share that salvation comes to us by grace alone. Again, I don't know if this is the exact meaning of the parable, but I like it because it's super hopeful, it's super encouraging and clarifying, and most importantly, it perfectly aligns with the rest of Scripture. At this point, I'm guessing you want me to declare a winner. If you're asking me, do I prefer meaning one or meaning two, then my answer is yes. Jesus did not explain this parable, at least in Mark, as he did some others. Mark did not record for us any more than that. And so he left us in this tension of searching and mystery. And so in that specific instance, I'm content with any meaning that perfectly aligns with the rest of what the Bible says. Now, I lean one way, and I'll tell you in private if you want to know after, right? I'm not going to say it from here because I don't want us to get lost in trying to debate the exact meaning of this parable, mainly because of this. There are clear implications from this parable. Those are crystal clear. I think the applications to what Jesus is teaching us here are not in mystery at all. And so what are we being called to by this teaching of Jesus? Well, the first is simply this, that we should be faithful in sowing. When I first started in ministry, I was a very young pastor leading a church plant over there in Putnam County, Indiana, and I was, I was still very early in my recovery from legalism. 
I've shared that story with you in the past. If you've been here, that I had a phase in my life where I was incredibly legalistic and the Lord brought me out of it. But early in my ministry, I was still kind of working my way out of it. And legalism has a lot of downfalls, a lot of things you have to unravel. But one of them is the immense pressure that it puts on people. And we were a baby church, right? We were meeting in a high school cafeteria, a new plant. And I came up with an idea that I called Friends Day. It's a terrible, cheesy name right? Uh, it was just not clever at all. But the idea was this, that on, on any Sunday we called Friends Day, that we put a heightened focus on inviting non-Christians to that service. And I, and I promised my congregation, right, that if on those Sundays, no matter what, there would be an overt 100% evangelistic message. So I was bivocational, I was still working in a golf course, and I, so I knew a lot of non-Christians, so I invited as many as I could, I rallied the church to do the same, and on Friends Day I looked out and the cafeteria was more full than it had ever been. And that whole week I studied harder and went over every detail of the message, I rewrote multiple sections, and, and I preached my guts out, I gave it all I had, and it all built to this altar call at the end, and not a single hand was raised, and nobody came forward, and from what I could see, nothing happened at all. And so I wrapped up the service, trying not to take it personally, and I kept up a brave face, and I tried to just kind of work through the rest of the day, just kind of wondering, like, what in the world was all that about? And I had a meeting that night, and I was driving home on these, these, this back country road in the middle of Putnam County, and Corinne called. She was still in school. We were dating at the time, and she just asked how Friends Day went, and I started to tell her, and then I told her I'd call her back, and I pulled over the side of the road and for 20 minutes just wept uncontrollably. And the reason why wasn't because I was burdened for those people's souls. It was because deep in my heart, I believed that I had failed God by not giving a good enough sermon to convince people to believe. I'm here to tell you, if you put the stock of people's souls, you put the stock of their spiritual direction on your efforts and your offerings and your ministry, there's nothing but death down that road. It took me at least two more years to realize what is an obvious biblical truth. I didn't fail God by not preaching good enough. I failed that morning by thinking he needed me to close the deal, as if he would ever need me. Our job is to scatter. Our job is to sow. Our job is to pray for our kids. Our job is to model for them the joys of following Jesus. When your kids grow up in your house, does it look like a good thing to follow Jesus? Our job, students, is to be light for Jesus at our schools. Our job is to be light at our gyms and our courses and our jobs and our more, right? Our job is to never let the praise of Jesus be far from our lips. Our job is to tell others how he has saved us and how he can save them. Our job is to live in such a way that people know to come to you when God is working in their lives. We had a really powerful baptism uh, last year. A guy named Robert, he works over here at Otter Creek Middle School. And his story was one that resonated with a lot of you because he talked about years and years of addiction and how the Lord has saved him from that. But there's one detail from that story that I'll always remember. He had this amazing experience with God by himself in his house. And he went to work the next day. And there are dozens of classrooms in Otter Creek Middle School. But he knew which classroom to go to. He went to Mr. Maxwell's classroom and told him, this is what the Lord has been doing in my life. Will you pray for me? Now, how did he know to go to that classroom? Because apparently Mr. Maxwell lived in a way that, that told people that Jesus was a part of his life. Do people know that about you? Can they come to you when God is working on them? And when you have that open door, do you boldly proclaim the grace of the God who saved you? But even after all that, the results, those are mysterious. 
They're beyond you. Any kind of spiritual growth, any kind of salvation, those are beyond you. The sower in the story sowed the seed and then he went on his way. There was nothing he could do to grow the seed. That's the work of God alone. But don't you see how that should give us hope? Because whenever we leave something in God's hands, it's in the most capable, powerful, and faithful hands in all the universe. And so our job is to be faithful in sowing, and secondly, to be hopeful and patient. I know that there are some of you who have a genuine, heartfelt concern for someone you love this morning. Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a coworker that you've shared the gospel with. It might be somebody even closer than that a relative, a spouse, a parent, a child. You want nothing more for them to come to faith in Jesus. And you're fearful for their life, you're fearful for their eternity, and you've prayed, and you've prayed, and you've prayed, and you've shared, and you've discussed, you've said all that you could ever say. And it sure feels like today that there's no growth. It sure feels like there's no sign of hope, nothing changing, but can you see with the reality that growth is something that God alone can bring? There's hope that comes with that. Because when you understand that you're leaving that loved one in the hands and care of someone who loves them more than you. You're leaving that loved one with someone who's more capable of saving their soul than you would ever be. You're leaving that loved one with someone who's at work all the time to this very moment. You're entrusting them to someone who works in the deep recesses of the soul and heart and mind where no one else can see that he's working. You're leaving them in the hands of someone who draws people to himself, someone who does these things in his time and his way because he's the best there's ever been at it. Think about what we see in the scriptures. From the murderous and persecuting Saul of Tarsus to the off-kilter and suicidal Roman jailer to James, the literal half-brother of Jesus who steadfast and refused to believe in Jesus while he was here to a group of Pharisees who likely helped orchestrate Christ's very death on the cross, God has again and again and again proved there's no one who's beyond the reach of his grace or the power of his son's cross. And so this moment, right, he's at work And he's working on your child's heart, and he's working on your spouse's heart, and he's working on your neighbor's heart, and he's working on your parents' heart, and he's working on your friend's heart. And so your job is to be faithful. To be faithful in prayer, to be faithful in sowing seeds, and to be patient and hopeful. Because with God, the story is never over before the end, and nothing's impossible with him. And lastly, if you've been grafted in, be in awe of the kingdom Jesus' story ends with a harvest. There's a harvest coming in which all evil is going to be vanquished. All wrongs will be made right. And death and mourning and pain and suffering and separation will be no more. And we're going to be made entirely new. And we'll shed these sinful natures and temporary, limited, hurting, breaking down bodies. And Jesus will reign unhindered, unchallenged in glory forever. And if you're in Jesus Christ this morning, he has saved you and brought you into that kingdom. He has saved you and brought you into that reality. He saved you and brought you into that hope and that future. You didn't earn it. You do not deserve it. And yet it's yours fully and forever in Jesus Christ. So may the wonder of that kingdom and may the glory of the harvest to come inspire us to suffer well in this life. The one of that kingdom give us a burden for those who do not have the hope that we have today.
May the wonder of that kingdom embolden us to prune the weeds and thorns that would steal our attention and affection and, and, and stop the seeds of gospel truth from growing in our hearts. May the wonder of that kingdom cause us to be faithful in sowing and may the wonder of that kingdom leave us in awe of the Jesus who made it all possible. May we be faithful in sowing the seeds he has commanded us to sow. May we be patient and hopeful while he does his work and may we be in awe of the kingdom that by his grace we have been brought into. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for this simple, hopeful, encouraging story from Jesus. Lord, what you have called us to is to sow seeds of truth. What you've called us to is to sow seeds of hope. What you've called us to is to sow seeds of the gospel. And then from there, it's out of our hands. You alone bring life, God. You alone bring growth. You alone bring enlightenment. You alone draw people to yourself. We, we don't have that power. So help us first to lay aside any unnecessary weight we're carrying. And Lord, in, in place of that, would you give us a godly burden to share the hope of Jesus with others? Lord, if there's anybody, anybody in this room or will be in this room that has not yet surrendered to Jesus Christ, I pray that you would bring that growth today. That you would enlighten them, that you would, you would share the hope of your truth and your gospel, that you would draw them to yourself, you'd save their souls this morning. Father, for the rest of us, Lord, would you put people in our hearts and our minds right now that you've placed in our lives so that we can model the joy of following Jesus, that you've put in our lives so that we can share and sow the seeds of the gospel in their hearts and put people in our lives that we can be actively praying for them. And let us trust the majority of the work to you. And we ask this in Jesus' awesome and powerful name. Amen. Before we dismiss you this morning, we're gonna give you a couple moments to spend some time in prayer. Uh, just wrestling with some things that the Lord may have been speaking to you or said to you this morning. This is a time set aside for you not to just run right back out in the distraction of life, but actually sit for a moment in his presence and, and ponder what he might be saying to you this morning. Please take advantage of it.